0: parents, uh, I'm pretty sure each of us has heard these words more than we would like to admit in some way, shape, or form. It's obey me or else this, right? 10,000 different variations of that basic phrase listing specifically what they need to do or in our most frustrated moments coming up with the most horrible consequence that we can think of to try to shake them into obedience. Um, that's us. That's our human default in parenting, isn't it? And, and, and no surprise, it's, it's kind of how our world works. Um, that's how our whole legal system works. If you break the law in speeding, you're going to ticket. If you get, break the law something more substantial, you're going to be sent to jail. There's, there's law and consequences. But as we come to the end of the book of the covenant, this, this book of God's law that he gave to Israel, um, he turns to... Motivation. This is kind of the last section of the book itself. Next week, we'll look at their response to it, and then we'll go back to Philippians. But, but he's, as he's kind of wrapping up this book, he, he turns the idea of, of why and, and motivation toward obedience, and he doesn't go to threat. He doesn't go to the, the danger of, of judgment, though I think if we look at the broader things, that's not entirely absent, but his primary motivator is blessing. It's joy. It's goodness to us. I just invite you to turn with me to Exodus 23. And we're going to start in verse 20. If you don't have a Bible with you, just go ahead and slip your hand, and one of our ushers will grab one for you. We want you to have God's Word in your hand, and, and it's all about God's Word. I have nothing of value to say. Um, all I have is, is these words from God, and that's my goal is not to say anything other than what he has said, and that we lean into that um, together. But as we look at these verses, um, they're, they're in some way, as I said, kind of the epilogue to the law. This is kind of his final words, his wrap-up statement. And the Lord takes this opportunity to point them toward the blessing of being his people, what it means to be this, this nation of God's call to be holy, to bear his name, and the blessing of walking in obedience And we're going to look at that under four headings. We're going to see the person of the blessing, the path of the blessing, the power of the blessing, and then the promise of the blessing. So um, let me read through this for us. As I said, Exodus 23, we're going to start in verse 20. And it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and you brings, brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and he will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the peoples against whom you shall come, and I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out from before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you a sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Would you join me? Let's, uh, let's turn to the Lord in prayer as we go to his word. Father, We need you. God, I'm so aware of my weakness and inability. Lord, I don't want to come proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but deciding to know nothing but Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So, Lord, we come in weakness and fear and trembling, and we ask for a demonstration of the power of your spirit this morning. God, would you be at work in our own hearts? Would you help us to see your truth in your word? God, humble us before uh, your word. Build us up. Help us to see this great blessing that you have put before your people. And God, that it would motivate us to obedience, that it would motivate us to striving hard after following Christ, and that you would be glorified in it, Father. Lord, we need you now. Would you be at work? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we look at these verses. We see first the person of the blessing, verses 20 and 21. The Lord's given them these laws, everything from, from slaves to animals to murderers to caring for the poor. And we have walked through them and seen them and understood them. And, and he's saying, now this is how you ought to live as my people. But I'm not only going to give you my law. He says here, I'm going to give you my angel." My angel will, will go before you. He's gonna guard you, and he'll bring you through to the promised land of the place I've prepared for you. What a promise. What a neat thing that is. God is saying, follow this covenant, walk in these laws, and I'm gonna send help to come with you, to, to, to walk alongside you. I'm not gonna leave you alone in this. And he'd been building this promise of the land since Abraham, and it's been increasing as they come along. They knew they're going to this land flowing with milk and honey of wide and open spaces, a country to call their own. But now he promises this angel to go before them, bring them all the way. And I think that's a neat blessing until we really dig in and ask, what does that actually mean? Who is this angel? And then it becomes a mind-blowing Blessing. The word angel in, in Hebrew and in Greek basically means just messenger. It's a fairly generic term. Uh, it, it can be used of, of human messengers, of angelic messengers, um, which I think if we get it, that's, that's kind of redundant to say. Um, but it's used in Exodus in a very specific way. He he doesn't use this phrase lightly. We saw him first in Exodus chapter three, verse two. He was the angel of the Lord. That showed up in the bush. And then as we read, it's very clearly it's the Lord Himself speaking from the bush. The angel of the Lord shows up again in the pillar of cloud. Um, we're told in Exodus 13:21 that the Lord went before them in the pillar of cloud. And then 1419, there's this strange phrase that says that the angel of the Lord was in the cloud. Well, which is it? Is it the Lord or the Lord's messenger? And then here in chapter 23, he says he'll send his angel again. And, and look what it says about this angel. I just want to peek down to verse 22. If you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say. So There's a close connection here. Something's going on. Verse 21 It says, do not rebel against him. And that word rebel throughout scripture is used almost exclusively against God. It's kind of like blasphemy in that way. It kind of implies that it's against the divine. If you rebel against this angel, so that gets our attention. And then the rest of the sentence just drives it home. He will not pardon your transgressions. Uh, Excuse me? I didn't expect an angel to pardon transgressions. Angels don't do that. They, they, that's not their place. Remember the Pharisees freaking out about this in Mark 2. Jesus said to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. And what did the Pharisees say? Why does this man speak like this? That's blasphemy for who can forgive sins except God alone? Good question, Pharisees. You're on to something. And here in Exodus, the question is answered. The Lord says, he, my angel, will not pardon your transgressions for my name is in him. That's huge. The name in in Jewish thought was so much more than just a a title. It was your essence, your person, your your being, your nature. And, And the name of the Lord was not just with him or on him superficially or temporarily. It was in him. The nature and essence of the one true God is in this messenger, this angel of the Lord. The presence of the angel of the Lord is the Lord himself. When that angel speaks, it is the Lord himself speaking. This this is the growing revelation of the Trinity happening right here in Exodus. And it's God saying, I will be with you in the person of my son. I will go before you. I will guard you. I will bring you all the way to the place I have prepared. And if you remember, that angel of the Lord shows up again to Joshua as Joshua takes over as leader of the people of Israel, brings them across uh, the Jordan River, and he says, I am the, what does he say, the uh, commander of the armies of the Lord. Who's the commander of the armies of the Lord? It's the Lord. And so the first command of this passage do you see it? It's, it's easily overlooked. you see the command there in verse 20? Behold, look, pay attention. Behold, because I'm sending an angel. Now, remember the context here. They've already been rescued, brought out of slavery in Egypt. They've already been made God's people and given this law. This is how you're to live now as my chosen people, saved and rescued. And he's wrapping this up in in blessing. My angel's going to go with you. Christian, this is so parallel to where we stand today. You have been rescued from sin and death. You've been made into the children of God. You've been given this call to walk in holiness. But what motivates you? What encourages you to, to press on? What strengthens you to to continue to pursue and grow in holiness, to obey these commands that we have? Where do you look when that journey seems impossibly long? When the battle around you seems hopeless? When discouragement and despair and darkness press in? What then? Here's the call look. Behold the angel of the Lord. Look at Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, isn't isn't that kind of the perfect example of this kind of light Christian platitude, right? I am struggling and hurting. Oh, look to Jesus. Oh, that's nice. What does that mean? I'm in real actual pain and struggle here. I don't know if I can get up in the morning and all you can say is, look at Jesus. Yeah, I, I think there is real practical help there. And if we dismiss that, now, now certainly it has been used lightly. It has been thrown around um, superficially in a way that is probably damaging. But if we really understand what that means, to know who Jesus really is, what it really means to, to look to him, to trust him. He's God himself going before you, leading the way. The one who will will guard you on the way, the one who has promised He will bring you through all the way to the end, to the promised land. There's nothing naive or simplistic about this. Your suffering seems overwhelming. If your battle against sin just feels hopeless, if your anxiety and worry is, is ruling your life, I know it sounds simple, but it's in no way simplistic. It really does boil down to, in some area of our lives, we're not knowing who Christ is and really trusting him. That he is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says to do. It it is intensely practical advice to look to Jesus, to know him more, to, to trust him more. small child goes to the doctor, having ingested deadly poison, and he knows something is wrong. He can feel it, and he flails and screams in fear. The doctor prescribes medication to cause the child to vomit, to, to purge the poison from his system, but the, the child doesn't understand. And so he, 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 he clenches his teeth, and he, and he wails, and he fights against this doctor's medicine. He doesn't trust the man in the white coat. He screams all the more and he clenches his teeth and he, he's gripped by panic as the awful taste of it fills his mouth and, and it burns on the way down his throat and he fights against his body as it begins to convulse, doing everything he can to, to work against it. His experience of the doctor is horrible. He hates it. It's traumatizing. A mature man invest, ingests the same poison. He's going to the same doctor, but on the way he pulls out his phone and he researches that doctor. He sees this is the best doctor in the world, specifically trained in this issue. He has a 100% success rate in cases just like this. He does it every day. He listens carefully as the doctor prescribes the remedy. He implicitly trusts everything the doctor has to say. He knows what he's doing. He's capable. He's at peace. In complete Confidence in the wisdom and skill of the doctor, he willingly takes the medicine. He's not surprised as it burns going down his throat just like the doctor said it would. He gives himself over to the convulsing of his body as it expels the poison and it's over. And He walks out rejoicing and peaceful. Thank you. What a great doctor. The experience of the mature man and the young child are radically different because the degree to which they know and trust that physician. We have ingested the deadly poison of sin. It's in us. And if you've trusted Christ, then the rest of our life is this process of him medicating and expelling that poison from us. And it's not always pleasant, but do you trust him? As he walks you through even trials and tribulations... Things we didn't expect. Do you know the Lord? Do you trust him? The degree to which anxiety grips us and suffering discourages us and sin defeats us and continues to rule us is the degree to which we don't know and trust this great physician. And it's all of us, isn't it? We find ourselves in this place of panic, fighting desperately against the remedy. I so wish I could stand up here and tell you I'm that mature man who knows the Lord, who just trusts him implicitly, who just walks through the the trials of this life with that peace that passes all understanding every every moment of the day. The Lord has constantly taken me through this school. Being patient with me through sleepless nights as I toil and wonder and wrestle with anxiety and and wondering about His plan and what what am I doing here and am I I sufficient for these things? And and God, why this and why that? It's not a simple thing just to trust Him, it's a labor, it's a lifetime journey. But the remedy really is behold Christ, look to Him that's what we need. I just want to pause for a minute. Can we just just ask you to stop and take a moment? What is it that plagues you right now? What what suffering is there on on your horizon? Or maybe there's anxiety in your heart or a sin that you're wrestling with. You just take a moment and offer that to the Lord. Just kind of identify, God, I'm I'm not trusting you with this. I'm just going to give you a minute to spend with the Lord in prayer. Let's just bring those things before God before we move forward. God, search me and know me and my anxious heart. God, help us to see each individually how our wrestling and unease, how our our sin and despair comes back to not knowing and trusting Christ. Lord, give us strength. We believe, help our unbelief, God. Help us to look to Christ, Father, we pray. In Jesus' name. So we got to learn to look to Christ. We got to learn to trust Him. That's the, the person of this blessing that we walk with Him through this. But then there's the path of blessing. Maybe this is like the medicine from the, the previous illustration. It's the, it's the journey we walk down as we follow Christ. Salvation isn't a, a one-moment thing. We are saved in a moment, but then that salvation continues to work its way out over our lives. So let's look at verses 20 to 26. Uh, sorry, 22 to 26. But if you carefully obey His voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God and he will bless your bread and your water and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land and I will fulfill the number of your days. So again, we have to remember God has already rescued them. He's already brought them out of Egypt, already made them his people. And he's promised them he's going he's to bring them all the way through to the promised land. And now he's telling them, here's how that's going to happen. Here's the path that we're walking down to get there. And it's the path of blessing. And it comes through obedience. Obedience. Verse 22, if you look carefully and obey his voice and do all that I say. Verse 24, you shall not bow down to their gods and serve them. The implication is serve me. Verse 25. You will utterly overthrow their gods, clear them out completely, have nothing to do with them and break their pillars into pieces. Um, The pillars here were either a single large stone or maybe a pile of stones built up, usually on top of a hill as a place of worship that they would worship their other gods. And so he's saying, break those down, destroy those. God wants to bless them. He's going to bless them to give them the promised land. He's promised it. And he's not going to break that promise. But that doesn't mean there isn't a journey for them to get there. That doesn't mean there isn't a process and a and a battle ahead of them. And the path that they're to walk down is the path of obedience. Worshiping Yahweh alone and rooting out every other thing that stands in competition against him. Again, the parallel is clear. We're saved by grace through faith. And yet that path from, from the moment of our initial salvation until the culmination of our salvation... The path toward blessing and joy in heaven is a path of obedience. It's a path of hunting down and destroying everything in our lives that competes with God. And it shouldn't be a mystery as to why. Um, It was obvious in Israel's context. Yahweh had said, I will protect you. I will provide for you. I will be all that you need. And these other gods came along. These other religions pop up and they say, Oh, you can find protection here. You can find provision over here. Just worship this God and he'll give you what you need. But you have to choose. You you can't serve Yahweh and Baal. Yahweh will have nothing of it. And it's not all that different for us. God offers to be everything for us. And sin comes in and says, or I could fill that void. I can take that spot. Are you lonely? Well, don't don't trust in God. Turn to porn. Oh, did someone sin against you? Don't trust in God. Turn to bitterness. That will fill the void. That will help. Do you feel like you're in danger of of maybe not being liked? Don't, Don't trust in God. Turn to lying. Just tell them something a little extra. This is what sin is. Jeremiah called it a a double evil, saying they've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. We abandon God who who truly holds every blessing that we need, will will be what our souls desire, and the fullness of life. And, And we turn to Broken cisterns, empty, dried up reservoirs that, that promise to give us what we need and never actually provide. And so we, we dishonor God as we go to other places to try to fill the void in our life. And the path to true blessing and hope has to be seeking out and finding every place in my life where my heart is looking to those empty cisterns, is going to places that will not Satisfy and that that dishonor the Lord. Every pillar set up in my heart. We're looking for something other than God for joy and satisfaction and hope. And destroy it. No more. I'm done with that broken cistern. I'm going back to the fountain of living water. No more doing whatever it takes to try to look cool or try to impress the people around me, try to find my, my identity in what people think of me. No, I'm going to find my identity in God in being his child. No more going out to get drunk to try to take the edge off of my, my disappointment in life. I'm going to trust God to ease my pain, trust in his sovereignty to make it all worth it. No more turning to outbursts of anger, trying to rule over my family to have my kingdom in order. I'm going to trust God to rule and that submitting to his rule is where joy is found. On and on it goes. That's sanctification, tearing down those pillars, finding those places where we're not walking, seeking our joy in God, but looking for it somewhere else. Verse 25, turning to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord and it will go well for you. There'll be blessing. Look at this passage. It's it's unbelievable. I'll bless your your bread and your water and take away sickness. There won't be miscarriages or barrenness. You'll live to old age. I'm just going to park that to the side for a minute. We're going to come back to that. We've seen the, the person of the blessing looking to Jesus, getting to know him, to trust him, following this messenger from God who is himself God. And then the path of blessing is kind of tearing down these idols, seeking to break down uh, the corners of our hearts. We still look for something other than God to find our joy and our hope. And then comes the help. Verses 27 to 30 shows us the power of blessing. Israel had been called to overthrow these false religions, break down the pillars, take possession of this promised land. And and now we see how this is going to happen. Let me read verses 27 to 30 for us. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make your enemies turn their backs to you And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. It's the power of God. The Lord sends them into this land. He commands them to wipe out all of these false religions and places of worship. And of course, tied up in that is wiping out all of the people who practice them. Now, we're just going to pause there. Um, that's messy. That makes, uh, that makes us uncomfortable. And, uh, and, and I just want to look at that for one second before we move on, because some people really get hung up there. Um, and let me just say a few things about it. Firstly, People usually talk about God wiping out innocent women and children. How could God do that? How could he, how could he kill all of the people in that land, um, all of those poor innocent women and children? The Bible knows no such category. It's only sinners. It's only rebels against God from Adam downward. We're born as part of this rebellious human nation, rose up in, in war against God. We all rightly deserve wrath. It's only grace that any of us take our next breath, men, women, and children. And actually the people of Canaan were exceedingly wicked and for hundreds and hundreds of years, God had been patient with them and allowed them to carry on against him. Secondly, people accuse God of being inconsistent with the sixth commandment. He said, you shall not kill. And then he kills thousands of people. How can God do that? Well, the problem is the Lord never commanded you shall not kill. The sixth command is you shall not murder, and that's very specific. There are times when killing is justified. Capital punishment is commanded in Scripture. Self-defense is valid. Um, That's not murder. Murder is never okay. Murder is unlawfully taking the life of another person for selfish reasons. This is not murder. And that brings us to the third, um, the last thing I'll say on this. This was a particularly unique time in history. God is ruling over Israel as his people. This is a nation under God. And so they are his tool to display his judgment in a unique way. And, And nobody else can claim this. This is not something that we can repeat. And it was not murder. This was God's judgment. This was an act of God. So, I hope that helps you kind of wrap your head around this a little better as Israel comes in and and wipes out these other nations. But the thrust here in this passage is God is saying to Israel, as I send you into the land of Canaan, wipe them out. And there are many different nations here. you see this list in verse 28, um, and, and that's not even complete. I, I know it's smaller in verse 23. I don't think that's significant. I think he's just kind of naming a few in place of the whole. He doesn't want to go through the whole list again. He's just saying all of these nations, they are so outnumbered and outgunned. They, they have no reasonable expectation of success going into Canaan. These aren't soldiers. They're, they're wanderers from the wilderness. They've been slaves for 300 years. But the Lord says, it will be done by my power. I will send my terror before you. I will make your enemies turn their backs to you. That means they're running away and they're fearful and vulnerable. I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the people of the land. Israel, you'll need to go and fight, but you're not fighting alone. Remember the angel of the Lord is to go before them, and now we see how he would do it. He would strike terror in the hearts of enemies and would be like hornets going before them. I love that picture. You ever step on a hornet's nest? Man, a couple of times. It is not fun. All of a sudden, you're surrounded by these vicious, biting, stinging, flying, virtually invisible opponents. You, You lose your mind. You run any which way you can. There's nothing you can do and nothing would make a crowd descend into chaos and scatter like hornets. Imagine marching into battle, armor on, spear in hand, ready for a fight and you come over the hill and you're looking at your opponents and all of a sudden hornets break out among them and they just would begin to run and wave their arms and run in every direction as if they had just simultaneously gone absolutely insane. Now, now, the Lord didn't literally send hornets, but he did go ahead of them. He filled them with terror, and he did numerous times cause entire armies to just flee inexplicably, to even fight against one another. The Lord went before them. He won those victories. that They had no business winning. And this small, insignificant, ragtag group of freed slaves Overthrew fortified cities, defeated trained armies, and and, in this undeniable display of God's power, they invaded the land of Canaan. It's unbelievable. Now, the Israelites still had to fight. They still worked hard and and were sweaty and had their faces smeared with, with mud and blood from the battlefield. They fought real hard battles but it was the Lord's power that gave them the victory. It was his strength that ultimately won the day. If you remember, they, they defeated this massively impressive, fortified, walled city of Jericho. God brought the walls crashing down, and they just walked in and cleaned up the mess. And, and so we sing children's songs about it. It has its own Veggie Tales episode. But nobody tells the story of the next battle, the city of Ai. No walls. No defenses, not particularly impressive. And in fact, Joshua said, you know what? Just send a small group. Just send 3,000 men. We don't even need the whole army. Just go and kind of knock them out of the way. No big deal. But one of the Israelites had hidden some of the treasure from Jericho that, that they were supposed to destroy, and he took it with him. And so as they marched out against Ai, the power of the Lord did not go with them and they got a taste of what this would look like on their own. They got badly beaten by this insignificant little town. Thirty-six men died, and the rest ran away in shame. They walked over Jericho, and they got soundly beaten in Ai. Without the power of the Lord, they were hopeless. They couldn't even take out this small town. But with God's power, as long as they're walking in obedience and trusting him, they were unstoppable, absolutely unbeatable. So God has called us to knock down the idols in our heart, to wage war against and wipe out the sin and rebellion and the, the fortified cities of unbelief and selfishness and anxiety and anger in our lives. And that's the path of Blessing. And God has promised to go before you, to supply the power, to be at work. That's what the Holy Spirit is all about at work in our lives, bringing sanctification. Don't be intimidated. Don't be discouraged. Don't be overwhelmed in this battle against sin. The Lord will fight for you. He will go before you. What hope that is. That's back to Philippians 1.6. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion of the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. I love Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. He is able. He will keep you. He will present you blameless before the presence of our Lord. That's his power. Now, we still need to pick up a sword and shield and fight. Let's not miss that. You will still need to get your face sweaty and smeared with dirt and blood in this battle. This is not some mystical, just let go and let God. It doesn't happen all by itself. Now, this will be the fight of your life. But God has promised to provide the victory so we walk in this in this strange balance of both fighting with all that we have doing everything we can to root out and war against the sin in our own hearts and trusting that it's him who brings the victory it's by his power that we grow and then notice verses 29 and 30 it says i'm going to knock i'm not going to knock them out all at once not going to do it in one year the lord says Now, in the case of Israel, um, they just didn't have the people to occupy the land. They didn't have enough. They were a small group. And and if God had wiped out the Canaanites and emptied the land, then then weeds and wild animals would have just taken over before they could grow into it. And so the Lord said, no, this is going to happen little by little, one step at a time. We see that happening throughout the books of of Joshua and Judges and even in the 1st and 2nd Kings to some extent. And, And it's the same for us. It's not an overnight thing right? You don't trust Jesus and wake up the next morning with a halo on, and your wife says, I'm so glad you'll never sin again. Wish. Not quite. No, it's this little by little, step by step, day after day, year after year, slow and steady, two steps forward, one step back, just keep going until the day you die process. That's what it's about. We need to see our sin this way as an enemy that we need to overthrow. Our, Our fear and anxiety, our unbelief, it's this adversary that we need to eradicate. Again, focused on Christ, the person of this blessing, and walking down the path of this blessing, holding tightly to the power for this blessing, and then finally trusting in the promise of this blessing. These last three verses, 31 to 33, The Lord says, And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. God promised Israel, This is the land that I'm going to give you. And he said, it's going to stretch from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates River. And that means nothing to us because we just haven't driven around there enough. Um, That's a big piece of land. Uh, Let's put a map up for a second and see. Um, So this is um, the area there. There's Egypt down in the bottom. And this red is the best I could do as I'm looking at this uh, from the Red Sea. Um, That's the trickiest one. Maybe they understood the Gulf of Aqaba up where that yellow dot is, ezion Gaber. They may have understood that to be part of the Red Sea. Um, I think it's so close in context with the crossing of the Red Sea, and I'm confident the crossing of the Red Sea happened over on the Suez Canal. I think he's talking about the Red Sea or possibly the main body of the Red Sea. But one way or another, from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, that's the Mediterranean Sea. So that's that bottom curved line all the way up to the Euphrates. That's a long ways up. That's a big chunk of land. Uh, And then um, obviously the Mediterranean Sea as the west side and the wilderness, I think would be the wilderness of Sinai uh, on the south. So that's the the portion of land um, that God is saying and, and it's massive, it's huge. And remember this people, see the little green circle? That's Goshen. That's where they were living before. Just months ago in Egypt, in this little huddled up ghetto. And the Lord says, I'm going to give you this huge, fertile, uh, politically significant. So much trade goes through that area. It was was a a desperately uh, coveted piece of land. And God says, it's going to be yours. And then he reiterates, verses 32, 33, don't get comfortable with the people The religions of the people that live there, you need to wipe them out. No exceptions. They will be a snare to you. They will bring you down if you allow them to continue. But as we look at this blessing, we need to be reminded, um, this is rich and full. God says, follow me. Walk in this path of obedience. Be my people. And this is what I will give you. And then let's be reminded, verses 25 and 26, we kind of left them hanging there. I'm going to bless your bread and your water. You're going to have abundance of food to eat. You're going to have fresh water flowing. I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry. None shall be barren. You'll live to old age. This is overwhelming. This is huge. This is not just a promise of land, but of of peace and flourishing and life. It's an amazing promise. God says, obey the laws of this covenant. Be my holy people and I will bless you so richly. Not only my angel going before you, being with you, not only will you wipe out these false gods and my power will ensure your victory and I will give you a home and a place of rest and peace and provision and health And life, that's what's to motivate them. That's what they're to be setting their their hopes on, their desires on as they walk in obedience. Why should we live this way? Why should we do all these strange things that he's commanded us to do? This is why. Because it'll be good, because he'll bless you so abundantly. Trusting in his goodness. And yet as we read through the Old Testament, they don't get this. They don't make it. It never actually happens. There're hints of some of these blessings, but sickness removed from them? no. miscarriages still happening, barrenness still happening. Looking at the map, we see uh, that orange area, that's Solomon's kingdom. that's the biggest the kingdom of Israel ever got. You see on the over by Tyre, the Philistines are still there and down Lower, they, they never quite wiped them out. Down in the wilderness, toward Egypt. They never moved in there, up toward the Euphrates. there's that yellow area. Um, They've they had influence there for, for about four chapters, and then it's gone. Never really ruled there with any authority. And, and if you notice the red, that's the kingdom of David. That's where David started. And one generation, David pushes it out and the orange is what Solomon inherited. And after Solomon dies, it's parted up, broken down and and begins to fall apart. They didn't get it. Did God fail? Did, did Did he fall short of fulfilling his promise to them? Not yet. The hope of these promises still awaits. These promises along with countless others as you read through the Old Testament are pointing forward to something far greater than than just an earthly kingdom. Solomon was never the fulfillment of the promises of God for Israel. And the, the land was never the extent of what God had intended to give them but so, so much more. They're pointing forward to the full coming of Christ, the Messiah. He's the one who brings in the blessing. He's the one who will reign supreme and every knee will bow and every tongue confess that that he is Lord. So the Pharisees had such a hard time figuring out Jesus because they expected him to come and blow open this kingdom and rule in power. But Jesus came the first time to die as a sacrifice for our sin but he will come again. And when he returns, he will bring a day where every sickness, every sorrow, every heartache is wiped out, completely undone. The Lord himself will rule undisputed, not not over this little tiny plot of land, over the world. That's the promise that that they were looking forward to, that we're looking forward to. It's the millennium. It's this thousand years after the return of Christ. When when Jesus will rule from Jerusalem and his kingdom will be without borders, encompassing the entire globe, and there will be peace and the blessing of eternity to follow, the new heavens, the new earth, complete health and joy and, and life eternal. That's the promise of the blessing. That's what ought to to capture our hearts and draw us forward. That's where our eyes should be set. Keeping us clinging to Christ, walking in obedience, battling hard against the sin in our own hearts, knowing there is an eternity of rich blessing and joy to come. Does that motivate you? Does Does that captivate your heart? You ever wake up in the morning and go, maybe today's the day? Like, just pull back the curtains and check. Are the clouds still there or has Jesus pulled them apart? That ought to get us going. That ought to be this anchor that we hold on to. We wake up and and feel that battle of sin. Here we go again. Another day with discouragement hanging over me. But you know what? There's a day coming. As we walk in obedience and trusting in Christ, there's a day coming when this will be done. It'll be over And make no mistake, for those who rebel against him, for those who do not accept this messenger, there will be wrath. There will be punishment and suffering. But for his children, for those that he has rescued and made his own, God doesn't call us to obedience out of fear, but out of this promise of blessing. And he's not left us on our own. He sent Christ to go before us, to empower us to win this battle. So look to him, trust him, rest in him, knowing that that he has promised this amazing blessing, the fullness of blessing ahead. Let's pray.